KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. At the beginning of this pandemic, it was really difficult to get tested for COVID, unless you could check off a pretty specific set of boxes. But now if you want to get tested, chances are you can probably schedule something at your local Rite Aid or Walgreens within a few days. And with flu season right around the corner, there's going to be a lot of extra symptoms floating around and more people are probably going to want coronavirus tests, even if it's just for peace of mind. So with the holidays coming up and flu season, I wanted to get sort of an overview of where we are right now with testing. What's available, how reliable are they, and how much faith should you put in a positive or negative result? Dr. Abby Rudolph is an infectious disease and social epidemiologist and associate professor in the College of Public Health at Temple University. Testing has become a huge focal point of this pandemic because you're either positive or negative, and then that affects you, the people around you, etc. So I feel like the mantra has become the faster the results, the better. But is that right? I mean, can you tell me a little bit about these coronavirus rapid tests, just the diagnostic tests? Okay, because I just want to be clear that the antibody tests aren't meant to be, you know, to diagnose coronavirus. But essentially, there's a few different ways that we would employ testing, especially for a virus that has such a global scale. So in the beginning, when we had testing shortages, we were definitely only testing people that were symptomatic and positive. As we move forward to a point where we're able to control the virus, and we want to be sure that if people are mixing with other people more frequently, we definitely want to have procedures in place where, you know, especially at college universities, any sort of congregate setting where a lot of people are in close proximity to each other, In addition to testing people that are symptomatic, we also want to be able to sort of frequently, just like they're doing actually with the football teams and the baseball teams, and we want to basically be able to frequently screen people who may not be symptomatic and sort of pull them out so that they can isolate. So there's sort of two ways that we're using testing, and I think that sort of, you know, informs which type of test might be the best test for that population. So If we're dealing with somebody that has a a symptomatic case and they go to their doctor, we probably want to use the test that is most sensitive. The problem was that these tests were having, you know, seven-day, 10-day turnarounds. And so by the time people were finding out that they were positive, we weren't getting information on who their contacts were in order to identify those people and tell them that they might need to quarantine. So by the time we would have been able to get to that step, their contacts might have already been infected. And in fact, they might have already spread the disease to others. And so in terms of contact tracing, we're like two to three steps behind the game. The other issue is that, you know, a lot of people don't have jobs where they can just wait the 10 days in isolation and wait for their results to come back. So if people are unable to basically isolate themselves and reduce the probability of transmitting to others in that time period, then we definitely need to have results as quick as possible. Because, you know, what I had sort of learned from talking to other people is that they had gotten a test 
and then they went back to work and they waited for the five days until they got the results. And so that's a really, really bad problem because during that time period, disease can spread really rapidly. So I would say, you know, if you're able to isolate and quarantine after you get the results, then we want to use the test that's most sensitive. So, you know, if your sensitivity is, you know, if you actually have the disease, the probability that the test is going to correctly diagnose it. So out of 100 people that have disease, if it's 97% sensitive, that means that three of those people will not be positive and 97% will. So we'll have three false negatives and 97 correct positives. So we really want that up, you know, closer to 99 or 100. But it's it's that trade-off that if we aren't able to do the contact tracing, then it kind of nullifies the effect. On the flip side, if we're talking about the screening, so like, you know, symptomatic testing is one thing, but then there's also screening to try to control outbreaks before they happen. Because we know that there's about a five-day period of incubation, and in a couple days before you develop symptoms, you're infectious. So in populations like college campuses and in the sporting events where people have like real close contact and maybe not wearing masks, then we also want to do routinely screen the population. So with that, we want to basically test everybody that isn't symptomatic with a quick test, basically rule out who doesn't have disease and rule out those that might be cases. For that, we might want to use a quicker test because they don't actually have symptoms. So in that way, we basically identify the people that don't yet have symptoms but are potentially contagious and quickly isolate them and do contact tracings to sort of thwart a little outbreak. Right. And when you say screen the population and as you said, you know, a lot of jobs need test results quickly. And these rapid tests now, I mean, they can come back in two hours versus another test that takes three to five days as you're talking about. So is there really a difference between the two? Can you maybe break that down a little bit more? Because you've mentioned false positives. So is that for Mm -hmm. both of the tests or is one maybe more reliable than the other? So for the diagnostic tests, there's two things that they look for. Some of them test for the genetic material. So if you've heard about RT-PCR tests, they're actually trying to detect the virus. And so those are molecular tests. Those tend to be more accurate than the antigen tests. So the antigen tests have come out more recently than the PCR. So the initial ones were all the genetic tests. The antigen tests look for proteins. And the proteins are easiest to detect in the initial few days of infection when the viral load is the highest, and they taper off a little bit afterwards. So the rapid tests tend to be more on the antigen side, although there are now also molecular tests that are coming about. So I was saying that the molecular tests tend to be more accurate than the antigen tests. The antigen tests are more likely to be rapid tests. So technically, you know, the longer wait may be more accurate, but there's molecular tests that are being developed now that are rapid as well. So I think as we advance in the technology, we'll get to a point where we we do have quicker tests that are using the genetic material rather than the, the antigens. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. I mean, we're seven months deep into this pandemic 
what's your opinion on how we're doing with testing or maybe why haven't we seen something like a rapid testing rolled out on a larger scale than what we're doing now? Well, I mean, one of the, I mean, we, I haven't seen this happen in the past, but the emergency use authorizations for testing that did allow initially there were, you know, some tests that got approved just because we had inadequate supply of testing. So I, I would say that some of the regulations to allow increased testing were maybe not as good as they could have been because we were in an emergency situation and were really struggling. But I, I think that as we you know move further and we're able to control it more, that we'll sort of move towards the higher standard of care rather than just filling the gaps with whatever we can. You know, l- rapid tests have been around for so many other viruses. Can you maybe talk about other viruses that we use rapid testing for? Because I know that right now, you know, any fever that's going to come up, people are going Mm. to start to get worried. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the flu test is an example of a rapid test. I believe strep is tested. So that's a antigen test. HIV has a rapid test. So like with HIV, you go in, it could be just a cheek swab you come back with a positive test. The first test is not quite as accurate. So if you have a positive test, then you have a follow-up test that basically looks for the genetic material, like what I was saying you know, before with the more accurate test to make sure that you have to screen positive on both of those to be confirmed positive. And so I didn't mention, but that sort of parallels to what I was saying with the screening. So we could initially screen people out with the maybe a less sensitive test that has quick results, And then if they test positive, confirm them with a more accurate test. But basically the idea for like a screening mechanism is to make sure that people that are potentially infectious are able to be isolated in quarantine before they transmit to others. But I mean, we've been using sort of sequential tests in other other cases. I think that the quick test is going to be probably really important in the flu season because They do have similar symptoms, like you were saying. They have different implications. So how we treat a positive diagnosis is going to be different. We definitely don't employ contact tracing for a flu diagnosis, whereas we would for coronavirus. It's also not impossible to have both at the same time. So even if we just did a flu test and we said, oh, you're positive for the flu, we couldn't say that you don't also have coronavirus. So... I think that in a lot of cases, we're going to have to be doing both the rapid tests just to make sure. Oh, that that is a that is another very good point. So how much weight do you think we should really put in the results? As you mentioned, you know, not going back to work is essential, especially when waiting for these test results. Well, I, I have to have faith that the tests are going to only get better. So hopefully, you know, in a month or so, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. It would be that they were very good and the quick ones were very reliable. I think, you know, if you if you have symptoms or known close contact and you're talking to a doctor, if you take the antigen test and it comes back as let's say it came back as negative. So you can have false negatives, which would mean that we would send you back to work when you're actually infectious. That's where a doctor would step in and say, well, you have symptoms, so I'm going to order a more sensitive test to make sure that it's actually 
not coronavirus. So that's one area where like a doctor's input would help. They might, you know, want to run a second test just to make sure. You know, we we do put a lot of weight in that positive or negative, I guess, diagnosis. You know, holidays are coming up. I'm sure there will be people who say, well, I will get a test. And if I'm negative, then I can go see grandma and grandpa. Yeah. So I just want to put a word of caution on that because, you know, despite the all the accuracy of the tests, you have to just remember that a test is a snapshot in time and it only reflects your status at that point in time. And so even if you test negative, let's say right now at 2 p.m., and then you go out and you're exposed to somebody and at 3 p.m. you come in contact with somebody, even if you get the test results three days later, they still reflect that 2 p.m. test, not the 3 p.m. test, or if you get on a plane or anything like that. So it's not really good for longer than what the test is. Um, I would say, you know, you definitely, one way to see whether you've gotten infected after being around people is to get a test. You know, just because it's it's specific to a time period, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's like a clearance card that you're, you're clear, because there's lots of ways that you could get exposed. But I mean, definitely the quicker is better because it is, I guess you could say, I mean, debilitating in a sense. I mean, if you can't do your job properly by, you know, going into work or there's, there is a cost to, you know, being out of the workforce, being not able to like go get your groceries in person or relying on other people. There is a, you know, societal cost of having to wait for the test and, you know, not going out in person. So for all those reasons, in addition to the reasons that we want to do contact tracing as soon as possible. I mean, those are all reasons why we would like a very accurate first test. And I know, so we've been exploring different strategies at Temple, and we've been doing um, some modeling simulations, looking at just screening. And for at least the screening situation, it seems that if you screen the whole population, like the people that don't have symptoms frequently, so frequently with a quick test, that it's really the quickness that the test comes back and the frequency that you're doing it that actually has a bigger role than the sensitivity. So you can get by with a little bit less sensitivity if you're doing it like several times a week for the whole population because, you know, it might not have been the right time in the course of the diagnosis. So like, you know, you're thinking about, so basically what happens is that the virus comes in your body and it starts replicating. And then we take a sample of that. And so depending on how good the sample is, the sample might not have gotten the material on it. Then we have to ship it somewhere if it's a, a long test. If it's in person, we don't have to worry about any of the shipping sort of issues that might relate to the sensitivity or specificity. So like maybe it, it didn't maintain the cold chain or it, was, it took too long and it wasn't maintained at the right temperature or you know, maybe the reagents weren't right, but there's all these things like maybe you got tested, you know, one day before the viral load really peaked. And so if you had gotten tested a day later, it would have, it would have detected your virus. Whereas if you got tested yesterday, it wasn't really at the level that we could amplify it and see it. What are a couple things that you hope people keep in mind as we are moving into the end of the year and flu season? 
Well, first I would recommend getting a flu shot. Um, you know, one of the reasons that that is especially important is because, as you, you probably already know, the flu is responsible for a lot of hospitalizations each year, um, as well as a lot of deaths. And we know with coronavirus that it spreads really rapidly and can quickly overtake the hospital occupancy. And so we definitely want to try to reduce the morbidity related to the flu so that if we have more cases of coronavirus that we are able to treat them. Because, you know, I really think that in the beginning, one of the, I mean, obviously we've gotten better treatment, but one of the reasons that we had more fatalities earlier on, you know, we were learning, but when the hospitals become over capacity and we don't have time to spend on patients and give them the attention that they needed, that means that not everybody gets the care that they should get just because there's not enough space. And so we definitely want to make sure that we do everything to control the flu, which we have a vaccine for, so that we don't overburden the health system with these sort of dual cases, especially cases that we have to distinguish between because they have similar symptoms. The second is that I know that it can be really tiring to keep up with the prevention activities. I sort of have made the analogy to other people with when a doctor gives you, let's say, an antibiotic and says, take this and take the full course, even if you start feeling better, like finish out the bottle. But a lot of people, when they start feeling better, they stop taking the medication because they don't notice the benefit of it. And so I would encourage people that even if you don't directly see the benefit of social distancing or wearing a mask, that it is an important prevention measure. You know, there's the saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so I, I just hope that people, even if you don't see the direct benefit in your community or in your direct circle of family or friends, that if you continue to try to do your best to maintain distance, to wear a mask, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, but don't, if you, I mean, I know it's going to get harder to do things outside compared to inside, but really sort of limit the number of interactions that you have and sort of the, the risk that you're engaging in. Just because, you know, if you think about it from a network perspective, you know, if I only have, you know, three people that I interact with and each of the people that I interact with only has three people, if one of us gets sick, then, you know, it, it exponentially could have an impact on the group and their contacts. So I would just encourage people to not, you know, get fatigued of the prevention because I, I think it's really important. And then also if you get sick with the flu or, you know, a lot of people try to push through it and go into work and I would, you know, try to stay home and be very low key because we definitely, you know, when your immune system is compromised, you could get infected with other things as well. And so, you know, we want to limit the spread of flu and also, you know, your weakened immune system. Yeah, those are those are all very good points. And I will say that I have got my flu shot and I have looked into a heat lamp so that we can still see some people outside during the winter. Yeah, I just bought one as well. It came earlier this week. So hopefully to put it out on the deck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, my thought process too. Thank you so much, Dr. Rudolph, for joining me today, talking about this important topic and getting some tips out there for people. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
that's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.